Hi folks, I'm Greg Boyd, uh, senior pastor of Woodland Hills Church, the guy that you normally listen to when you uh, download sermons. You may not recognize me because I'm getting better looking by the minute. I haven't cut my hair for over five months and uh, I must say it's looking pretty groovy, don't you think? I don't know, but that's not what I want to talk about. Uh, five years ago, actually it was about six years ago, we coined a word. We're trying to describe people who podcast uh, and who are part of Woodland Hills Church and impacted by Woodland Hills Church. Uh, but they're not parishioners. And so we decided to call them podrishioners. They podcast. Now that word has caught on. It's, it's been so commonly used now, it's being so commonly used, that I'm told that it's been nominated to be incorporated into Webster's Dictionary as uh, an official part of the English language. And if that happens, we'll be like uh, one of the first churches ever to have invented a word. How cool is that? You know God is moving in powerful ways when a church invents a word. And now you're part of that. Hallelujah, praise God. But that's not what I want to talk about either. Here's what I want to talk about. If you are impacted by the ministry of Woodland Hills Church, I'd like to encourage you to help support the ministry of Woodland Hills Church. Last year we began what we call a sustain campaign. And uh, it's a campaign designed specifically for pod parishioners uh, to encourage them to help sustain the ministries of Woodland Hills Church. So everything you give... Uh, goes to help us make available our podcast for free, but it also goes to all the other cool and real Christ-glorifying ministries that, that we're in, involved in. So I want to encourage you to join Sustain, be a part of that. There's two other reasons, though, why I'd like to encourage you to uh, join Sustain. First, we've got a, a generous group of parishioners who have pooled the resources together and have committed to giving $160 uh, for every person who joins the Sustain campaign. These are parishioners who want to encourage the pod parishioners uh, to help sustain the ministry of Woodland Hills Church. So whatever you give, regardless of the amount, they're going to donate $160. So if you pledge, say, $10 a month, that normally would be uh, come out to $120 for the year, but now it'll be $280, if my math is right. So whatever you give, you're giving more than you give. Secondly, and this, I admit, it's a little bit cheesy, but sometimes cheesy is good, uh, we've designed a t-shirt just for parishioners that we'd like to give you as a way of saying thanks. Regardless of what you donate, however much, however little, you get a t-shirt. And uh, it's just our way of saying thanks. But most of all, we want you to know that we, we seriously consider it an honor uh, to be partnering with you to advance God's kingdom. So thanks for uh, podcasting. Keep tuning in, and God bless you. How you doing this morning? Well, you look marvelous. You look marvelous. It's good to be together. Uh, you know, uh, that last song we sang, I just love that hymn. Uh, Praise the Lord. I love it. Uh, you know, I, I went to Catholic school until fourth grade, and, and we had to go to church every morning. Um, and uh, we sing that song all the time. And um, I have a lot of, I've shared some negative memories of that period of my life. But that's kind of a warm memory. There's something about that song I just love. Although I, I was reminded of a question I had, even as a very young boy, singing that song uh, in Mass. Um, what does it mean when it says, gladly for A, we adore him? <laughs> gladly for A. And I remember always wondering, like, A? What's that? A, you know, was it written by a Canadian or something? A. <laughs> it makes sense, doesn't it? A. A. Um, anyone know what it means? What? Yes? Gladly Gladly for yes, we adore him. Not the best grammar in the world, but I suppose it would. Someone said last service that they thought it meant forever. It means forever? A means forever in old English? A and A, forever and A. A and A. Well, 
All right, well, God reigns A. God reigns A. All right. All right, here we go. So we're uh, hovering on these uh, same passages of Scripture, that um, these five verses. Uh, we've had uh, three or four weeks on it already, and, and this will probably be the last week, but I'm not making any promises. Um, you know, I, I just think this is the way to, to, do the, to say the word. You, you, when, when you feel, you know, you get a, a text, and, and you start unpacking it, and you start seeing some of the, the depth in it, you know, why be in a hurry? I, right? You know, it's... Um, I hope this isn't boring you. Am I boring you? I, I hope I'm not boring you. Am I, it's like, save five verses here. Yeah, come on, Moogie. Uh, but, you know, this isn't about entertainment, right? This is about digging into the Word. We like to dig into it. We like to chew on it. We like to get it on the inside. And, and you got to let, let, let it saturate. I mean, don't read the Bible like you read a newspaper. This is supposed to be stuff that, it's not just about the information. You want to let it saturate and pick it apart and chew on it. And So that's what we're doing here. And so this is like week number four or five on these same five verses uh, we're entitling this message, Non-Competitive Suffering. Uh, and and the meaning of that will become clear, hopefully, uh, in about 20 minutes. Um, I'm going to try to uh, keep some time at the end of this message for some questions, a Q&A thing. I love doing that. And so if you have a question as I'm going through this message, text it in, and we'll try to get to two or three of those uh, at the end of this message, depending on how long-winded I get. Eh? All right. Hopefully, hopefully the sermon won't go for A. <laughs> uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, non-competitive suffering. Paul says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. We've chewed on that several times. Hysterema, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We do it for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant, Paul says, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. That's a little, nice little surfacey, covering, fluffy thing. Word in its fullness. And that fullness is about the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations. A. But is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known to the Gentiles the glorious riches. Glorious riches. We've been just talking about how glorious they are and how rich they are. The glorious riches of this mystery, which is all about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Mm, Christ in you and you in Christ, and it's just glorious. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul here is seeing that as a, as a leader, as a teacher, as an apostle, he, is going, he, he wants to present everybody on the judgment day fully mature in Christ. He's going to like say, okay, here's what we did. And I think that is, in some sense, with the job of every pastor and leader and teacher is, um, is why the book of Hebrews says, you know, pray for your leaders because they got to give an account. <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and it's not going to be, uh, I'm, it's not going to be about uh, how many people did you get to attend? It's going to be about how mature were they? How many disciples did you make? He said, go out and make disciples. He didn't say, go out and make church attenders. Uh, so, for my sake, will you all be mature? All right. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm in big trouble. All right. <laughs> it occurred to me. Right. So Paul says, to this end, I strenuously contend to make people mature. He strenuously contends with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ is the energy powerfully at work that's driving Paul uh, to strenuously contend to make everyone mature in Christ. And I'm going to strenuously contend to do that right now 
admonishing and teaching everyone to make them mature in Christ. Amen. Okay, pray with me here for a moment. Father, will you use this message? Abba, Father, will you use this message to mature us in Christ? And I pray for all who are in this auditorium that you would use this message to mature them. And Father, everyone listening through podcasts or television, pray that you'd use this message to mature them. Grow us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Use this message to build your kingdom in our hearts and our minds. I pray, Lord God, you open our hearts, open our ears, help us to pay attention. God, we're going to be reflecting on on suffering, and that's not a very enjoyable topic. And God, we in our flesh hate suffering, and in this culture, in American culture, we run from it like the plague, and yet it's what you call us to. You call us to suffer, as you call Paul to suffer, to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So Father, will you use this message? Holy Spirit, infuse this message with your authority, and use it to build courage in our hearts to suffer, and, and even a passion in our hearts to suffer, and even a joy, as Paul had, a joy in suffering. Help us to crucify our flesh, because otherwise this is not going to happen. We surrender it all to you this moment, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. All right. So we've been seeing the last couple of weeks, and salvation is not a uh, get-out-of-hell-for-free card, a fire insurance policy or something like that. Salvation is participating in the life of God. Salvation is, is, is about sharing in the, the life of the triune God. It's, it's, we've seen that, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit opened themselves up to embrace us. This was the mystery that was kept uh, hidden for ages and generations. But it's now revealed to us. God, from the very start, planned on becoming a human being, uniting himself with us in order to then take us and unite us to himself. And, and from the very start, the plan was for us to be in Christ and Christ to be in us. And Christ is in the triune God. So from the very start, the plan was for us to be caught up into the flow of the love of the triune God. It's just absolutely magnificent. I, uh, several weeks ago, used this analogy of uh, Tim and Alicia, my my daughter and son-in-law, and how they opened up the love of their family to embrace this child, to adopt Eden, and, and to squish her into their family the way God squishes us into himself. Um, I'm happy to tell you that as of three days ago, uh, Tim and Alicia have adopted another little child. This is Rollins right here. This is Rollins. Hey, isn't he beautiful? Hello, Rollins! Ha! He's going to be a basketball player, you can tell. Look at that. Uh, he's a beautiful uh, young boy, and it's Magnificent, and so the, uh, Tim and Alicia are, are again, and, and Sage and Eden. They're, they're they're welcoming Rollins into their family. They're embracing him. They're enveloping him in their love, so that now Rollins will participate in the love of this family. The very same love they have for one another, they're going to have towards Rollins, right? They're they're just squishing him into the, the, the their being. Well, that's what God does to us. God, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, come around us, envelop us. And squish us into their being. We're, if we will surrender to this, we have a bear hug around us. A bear, God's bear hug, omnipotent bear hug, squishing us into his being so that we participate in the love that God is. The, the uncreated, unending, infinitely intense love that God is, because God is love. That love is now directed toward each one of us. Um, and not just toward us, but it en- envelops us so that you are loved with the same love that the Father has for the Son, and the Spirit has for the Son, and the Son has for the Father, and that we're caught up in that exact same love. Right now, you are loved with that kind of a love. You're, 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 you're swimming in that love. You're breathing that love. It's your, your, your environment 
right here, right now. The mystery that was kept hidden has been revealed. We are enveloped. If you'll just surrender your life to Christ, you're enveloped by God's triune love, perfect love. Uh, it, it's just, it, 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 it could not be more beautiful. It could not be more spectacular. It could not be more awe-inspiring. It's, it's, it's incomprehensible. The story could not be more beautiful. It's the story we live in. God could not possibly give us something that he didn't already give us, himself. God is just being himself towards us. That infinitely intense love is now turned towards us. And it's true now, not just in the future. It's true right now. Every second of your life, you're enveloped in that love. And so I encourage us to think about this all the time, to live in this. 24-7, you're... Keep, keep an, an awareness uh, uh, that, that you are right now, this moment, as you're listening to me, parishioners, as you're jogging, doing the dishes, or whatever you're doing, you are, you are enveloped in the perfect love of God right now. A love that never began and will never end and never has wavered for one second. Uh, you're enveloped in that right now. Be aware of that. Just be aware of that as you're listening to me. Um, it changes things. It, it, it expands your consciousness. It alters everything as we're aware of, of this most important fact of our environment. So normally, we just are aware of the physical, right? And, and we, we lower our consciousness to just take in that data. Um, and we block God out so that our, the way we live most of the time is like atheists. You know, we're just not aware of God. So we need to, be, to cultivate an awareness. This is what's called in the church tradition, practicing the presence of God. To be aware of God's presence and then surrender to that presence. Right now, there's, you're, 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 there's a barrack around you. You're being enveloped. You're being squished by God. Just say yes. Just go, yes, I yield to that. I, I'm, and remain aware. Always be yielding to the, to, to the love of God that's enveloping you. And it changes the way. You know, you, it reframes everything. It's like putting a different frame on a picture. It just gives it a totally different texture. And so the way that you view the people around you, the way you view yourself, the way you view God, the way you experience the world... If you stay aware of this love that is swirling around you and enveloping you and you're caught up in this eternal flow, it just, it just changes things. What happens is as we cultivate a yieldness, a surrendering to the love that is enveloping us, it, 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 we're inviting God in. Now, he's already there, but we're inviting God in on the way we experience ourselves in the world. And, and that becomes part of our identity. It becomes part of who you are. It begins to define you. And the more your identity, you know, you let go of that old identity that you inherited from, from the world, ugh, all that junk. You let go of that and you let this be your identity. You are first and foremost an adopted child who's, who's being enveloped into the love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and as, as, as that becomes part of your identity, it changes who you are. See, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You've got a life in you. You're caught up into this flow. And that flow pulls you in a certain direction. And as it becomes part of your identity, you're motiv- you have this motivation growing in you to want to begin to love like God loves and serve like Jesus serves. And, and, and you begin to look like Jesus and, and, and talk like Jesus and think like Jesus and sound like Jesus and serve like Jesus and sacrifice like Jesus. That motivation leads us to then sacrifice and serve. And you, you then you, find, you discover the joy in that. Um, and the joy of just letting go and giving. And now you're participating in the love of God, and you're participating in the sacrifice of God, and now you're participating in the joy of God. And to do all of that is simply to participate in the glory of God. Because the glory of God is nothing other than, as I said last week, the the self-sacrificial love of God put on display. It's the shininess of God's radiant beauty, and we then begin to become little mirrors of that as we're caught up into that flow and yield and surrender. Oh, it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. That's what it is to live for the glory of God. Sometimes it's, it sounds so religious. I'm going to, 
All for the glory of God. But all it means is, is live in a way where you're constantly shining with God's shininess. <laughs> you're putting on display that self-sacrificial love. Mm. All right. So I, I want you to now uh, move on and talk about, I think this is the last thing we're going to be talking about in this, this passage. I don't know. But uh, I want to talk about this idea of participating in Christ's suffering. Suffering. What, what does that mean? What does that look like to share in Christ's suffering? Uh, I want to read a passage that we read last week, uh, Romans chapter 8. Start there. Where Paul says, if we are children, then we are heirs. We inherit. We're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Or co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So last week, I, I, I showed how, how Paul, he, um, one of the ways he expresses our union with Christ is he says we're made one spirit with Christ, right? We're joined uh, in, in, a, in a spiritual way with Christ. Um, and I, I, I used the analogy of these conjoined twins that I saw in a documentary where they're conjoined at the head, and their heads were, were, were you know, fused sort of, and in a way where uh, they shared each other's experience so that when one was tickled, they both laughed, and when one hurt, they both cried. They shared these experiences. And that's something like what is going on, an analogy for what's going on as we're one spirit with Christ. Um, we, we, all that is his becomes ours, and all that is ours becomes his. There's this sharing going on. And it's very, very real. Very, it's, this isn't poetry. This isn't a metaphor. This is ontological. This is real. So much so that Paul said that his, the marks on his body uh, reflect and participate in the marks on Jesus' body. His beatings somehow shared in Christ's beatings. So that in some mysterious, wonderful, beautiful way, what Christ went through on the cross, we go through. And as I showed last week, what we go through, Christ goes through. There's this sharing that goes on. We share in his sufferings. It's a real sharing. We participate with his work on the cross. Not to atone for people's sin. He doesn't need any help doing that. But to carry out his, his, his work in the world. To carry out what he did on the cross throughout the world. And this is how we fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We participate in his sufferings to complete what he was doing on the cross. Not to atone for sins, but to carry his work out into the world. And we do that by sacrificing, by suffering. What we need to see is that sharing in Christ's sufferings, the call to suffer, is not just for Paul, not just for the apostles, not just for the early Christians. The call to suffer is not just for the superheroes of Christianity. It's not just for the missionaries or for the martyrs. It's not just for folks who are living in, in countries that are hostile to Christianity. No, the call to suffering, we see it here, is for everybody. If you are a child of God, Paul says you're a child of God, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Notice the if-then clause. If we share in his sufferings so that we may share in the, uh, the glory. This is, this is for everybody who's a child of God. You, you part, it, it, there's no other way around it. If you're united with Christ, you, all that's his is yours and yours is his. And that includes his suffering on the cross. That's part of the deal. It's part of the package, if you will. If then. Now, the if then clause, it's not a, a sort of um, merit thing. Like, like, like we have to prove our love for God by suffering to, in order to merit the glory. We're not trying to achieve the glory. We're not trying to purchase the glory. We're not trying to achieve it in any way. It's not that kind of an if clause. It's more of a natural cause and effect thing. Um, 
God's glory is nothing other than his self-sacrificial love put on display. So by definition, we're only, we put on display that glory. We participate in that glory by suffering. If you suffer, you share in the glory. See how that goes? By definition. That's just what, that, that, that's what God's glory looks like. And while that full glory won't be uh, revealed and put on display until the end, when the kingdom comes in fullness, when God wraps up this epic in history, uh, the, the glory will only unambiguously be put on display then. So that's what we're looking for. But even now, we're to be participating in the glory by participating in the suffering, and you can't do the one without the other. See how that works? So we're all called, we're all called to share in Christ's sufferings and therefore to share in his glory. So I want to ask the question, what does that look like for us? What concretely does that look like for us to share in Christ's sufferings? Now, I'm not going to answer that specific question for about another 10 minutes because I want to set up a little bit of background first, all right? It isn't hard to figure out what it looks like to share in Christ's sufferings when you're Paul or when you're just an early Christian, a Christian in the early church. Because in the early church, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, they understood, everyone understood, meant that you're saying Caesar is not Lord. Because you're supposed to confess, it's like part of the Pledge of Allegiance, that Caesar is Lord, Caesar is King. All of a sudden, it comes, Christ comes along and says, no, you know what, I, I, he's Lord, Christ is Lord, and Christ is King. And you can't have two of them. Well, in the first century, that can get you killed. It got a lot of people killed. Uh, that, that's, that's a dangerous thing to, to be believing and to be saying. And so Paul tells us in his, his, his letters, he, he conveys the truth that in the early church, you had to be willing to suffer and even die to follow Jesus. It was part of the deal. So Paul tells us about how he was imprisoned many times and he was beaten many times. And, and, and we find out in their, uh, from early church records that he was, he was eventually martyred. To follow Jesus means you suffer. It's not hard to know what it means to suffer with Christ in those kind of situations. Some early Christians were fed to lions in the Colosseum. Some were, were made the sport of gladiators who found clever ways of executing them. Uh, some were beheaded. Some were burned alive. Nero he would have these dinner parties where his real uppity-up friends would, would come. And, and, and he would take the Christians and put tar on them, tar them. And then he'd impale them on posts and light them on fire. And they, and they were called Roman candlesticks. And it was a big joke. He's burning Christians. Ah, it's unthinkable. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I would think that you'd lose your appetite. <laughs> He's holding dinner parties while these people are burning. Ugh. But that's how some of the early Christians were, they had to suffer like that. We have one account of a guy who was boiled in oil and a skin was flayed off of him. To pledge allegiance to Christ in the early church meant you suffered. So it's not hard to figure out what does it mean that, that no one was sitting around wondering about that in the first century. In fact, throughout church history, the true children of God have often been subject to terrible, terrible torture and suffering and, and, and execution. Uh, often at the hands of other professing Christians. So, for example, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, one of my favorite groups uh, are the Anabaptists, who are the four, forerunners of the Mennonites. And it's the church tradition that I most closely identify with because it's the only church tradition that doesn't have any blood on their hands uh, because they understand that nonviolence is at the center of the gospel. And I, I just love this group. But the Anabaptists were persecuted by everybody. They had a few distinctive beliefs that ticked everybody off. So the Anabaptists, uh, they, they, they believed. I mean, they wouldn't pledge allegiance to their country because they said, our allegiance is to the kingdom of God and we can't have two. And they... Um, uh, they wouldn't participate in, in wars, and, and they, they, they wouldn't even defend themselves 
uh, with the use of force because Jesus told them to turn the other cheek and to love your enemies and to serve your enemies and to never retaliate. And they were the one group that took that seriously. <laughs> and, and it ticked everybody off. And they also believed in adult baptism by immersion. They were the only group that believed that. And, um, uh, and that made everyone mad. So uh, the Lutherans and the Calvinists and the Church of England and the Catholics... I mean, they were always fighting each other anyways, but they all agreed on, on trying to exterminate this group. And so they all persecuted the Anabaptists in terrible, terrible, terrible ways. I mean, we have records of them beaten and, and imprisoned and uh, beheaded and burned alive. And the favorite way that they used to like to put these folks to death, these are the Christians now, um, Christians now, uh, they would uh, drown them. It was so funny. You know, they, they like to baptize by immersion. immersion. Well, let's immerse them. So they'd have these public executions where they drown them to send a, a warning out to everybody. Don't even think about being baptized that way. It's really hard for us to you know, get into how they would be so mad about that, but they were. And so they would take the Anabaptists, whole families of them, out into the middle of a lake. Uh, the lake surrounded by a bunch of people. This is a public thing. And if the guy was a pastor, they would first execute. They, they, they'd tie up the hands and feet and throw the children overboard. And then they'd throw the spouse overboard. So he had to watch first. And then they'd throw him, him overboard. All for the glory of God. Well, the Anabaptists never had to sit around wondering, what does it mean to suffer for Christ? They knew, you know. It was, it was obvious in, in those situations. And the truth is that today, today, there are roughly, the estimates are around 30 million Christians who have to suffer like that for their faith uh, in countries that are hostile to Christianity. Um, North Korea, for example, that heads the top of the list, but Somalia and, and, and Yemen and, and Afghanistan and many other places. Uh, Christians today often have to suffer. At the very least, they're, 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 to be the, a follower of Jesus you're, means you're ostracized by your family or by your community. But it also means that you could be imprisoned and you could be publicly tortured. So send out a warning to everybody else. Don't even think about being a Christian. Or executed. Just send out a warning. Don't even think about being a Christian. Some, some folks are locked in prison cells. Tiny, cold, dark prison cells. If you go on like Voice of the Martyrs and other websites, they'll tell you about some of the situations that people are in. And there's thousands and thousands of Christians right now who for the rest of their life are going to be in this tiny little cell. No one hardly even knows about them. They live on, on, close to starvation in unthinkable conditions. And they'll be doing that the rest of their life because they will not renounce allegiance to Christ. See, there's no question about what it means to suffer for Christ when you're in a country that is hostile to Christianity. No problem there. No ambiguity there at all. What does it look like for us? And here I'm talking about we Christians in the West. And it's, in fact, specific, I'm going to speak, focus specifically on America. So, parishioners, if you're listening from uh, in a different country, we've got like 40 different countries who listen to us. But um, uh, this maybe won't apply to you, so just eavesdrop in on us and, and take out of it whatever you can and, 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 uh, and pray for us. Because look, we are in a country where we're not persecuted for our faith. So what does suffering look like for us? In fact, we're in a country that not only are, in some ways it's like the opposite of what Christians have to suffer in, 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 in hostile countries. Because in this country, uh, whereas the persecuted Christians have to suffer because of their allegiance to Christ, we live in an environment where uh, having allegiance to Christ means for many people that you don't suffer. Not only do we not suffer, but we make not suffering a virtue. The sign of, uh, that you're blessed is that you don't suffer. 
The proof that God's on your side is that you don't suffer. The proof that God's on your side is that you're comfortable and, and, and have wealth. The proof that, that we're a favored nation in the minds of many people is, is that, that uh, we're, we're, we're king of the hill, king of the world hill, you know? And, and, uh, and that's the evidence that God's on our side. It's the opposite of suffering. In fact, for many Christians still to this day, being a, a Christian means not only that you don't suffer, but that you fight for your rights. And, and, and you try to get as much power as you can to impose your, your, your will on others. It's the opposite of what they go through in, in hostile countries. So what does it mean for us in this environment to suffer for Christ? I had several folks last week ask me that question, come up after the service. I read Romans 8 last week, and they come up and they said, oh, wait, I'm, I'm worried because I don't suffer. So does that mean I'm not a real child of God? Does it mean I won't share in the glory because I don't suffer? And it's a good question. In fact, I'll be honest with you, it's a question that at times in my life has haunted me. I am there. I, you know, do you ever read like you know, the, some of the accounts of of, of uh, the the uh, um, what's the book uh, Mirrors Mirror of Martyr? What's a book that? Yeah, yeah, the Book of Martyrs. If you read that book, I, I, I remember reading that about twenty five years ago, and it just talks about Christian martyrs throughout history. And you read about some of the unthinkable things that they had to go through out of their allegiance to Christ, the way that they had to suffer and, and were persecuted. I read books like that, and I feel like a loser. You know what I mean? It, it, or, or does this ever happen to you where you, know, you read accounts of, of some folks who have given up everything uh, to, for the cause of Christ? And folks who have, have uh, left the comfort and security of America and, and given up their retirement accounts and insurance and an income to go serve in, in impoverished countries or, or even to put themselves in harm way by going to a country to, as a missionary to... Um, uh, spread the gospel in, in, a, in an environment that's hostile to Christianity. And some of these folks have to then ha- see their families be imprisoned and beaten and sometimes executed. And I read about the sacrifices that some have made for the cause of Christ. And I look at my life, and I sometimes feel like a loser because I don't suffer like that. Does that mean I'm not a, a child of God? Does it mean that I'm not going to share in Christ's glory? I mean, it's, it's an important question because we're all called. Remember, we're all called to suffer with Christ. I don't feel like I suffer. I, Shelley and I, I think, are, are pretty generous with our money and our time and, and furthering the kingdom and serving the poor. Uh, we could do better, uh, but, but we're, we're pretty generous. But, but I, it's nothing compared to these folks. You kidding me? It doesn't even compare at all. I, I live in a house that by world standards is, is a castle. I, I, I eat meals that by historic standards are the meals of, of, uh, of kings. I, 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 I drive a $2,000 car, for crying out loud. Now, they, that may be as cheap in America, but by world standards, that's a chariot. Well, there ain't a chariot in history that could go as fast as my $2,000 vibe. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I wear nice clothes. And most of it's given to me for free, but still, I, I, I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable. I got a secure income. I got some, a little bit of retirement. I, I got some insurance. You know, I don't suffer. So does that mean I'm not a child of God, a true child of God? Let me say two things about this, and this, go, this will answer the question, what does suffering look like for us, all right? There's two things I, I, I want us to get here. Number one, I have to take seriously the possibility that I am a loser. Maybe I'm a loser. Last night someone said, amen. <laughs> There's a friend of mine, and he almost said it loud enough for everyone to hear, but... Seriously, I have to look at that possibility. Um, I think we all do. It, it could very well be. Look, we're in an environment that conditions us to 
chase after and expect comfort and security. That's the atmosphere that we breathe, and it's just possible. In this pseudo-Christian pagan culture in which we live, it's possible that we've been infected. Just possible. Maybe even likely that we've been infected with that. We've got to assess our lives and ask, are we in fact missing the call of God? Are we in fact not sacrificing the way that God wants us to sacrifice? We, 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 there's a sermon of questions we need to ask ourselves. I, I encourage you to think about, I'm going to go through several questions here, and these are the kind of things that we need to honestly think about, pray about, and if possible, discuss with others. Because uh, we all need people involved in our life to help us live out the kingdom. And the kingdom is all about community. So we need to ask ourselves in, in dialogue with others, are we in fact manifesting God's self-sacrificial love to the extent and in the way that he's calling us to? We need to seriously ask ourselves, have we perhaps been co-opted by our self-indulgent, materialistic, pseudo-Christian pagan culture? It's possible that we have been. Does our life reflect the values of the kingdom? Or does our life reflect the values of the empire that we find ourselves in? We need to sit down and pray about, think about, and discuss with others these kind of questions in a very honest way. Are we really seeking first the kingdom of God, honestly? Or are we seeking first our own kingdom, our our comfort and security? Because that's what we're conditioned to seek. We're conditioned in the Christian American culture to seek first our own kingdom and comfort and convenience and call that the kingdom of God. Because, of course, God's all about just blessing us. We have to seriously assess these questions. Do we really find our identity and our worth and our security from God's love demonstrated on Calvary? Or are we, to, at least to some extent, getting our worth and security from our job and from our possessions and from our bank account and from our achievements and from our retirement accounts and from our insurance? Really, is our security and worth found in, in, in Calvary? Are we swimming? And the Holy Spirit helps to be honest about these questions and talk about them with others. Are we swimming against the current of this pseudo-Christian pagan culture? Or are we comfortably flowing along with the current of this culture? Which is it? We need to ask God not to condemn ourselves or anything, but just to be honest and, and assess the reality of our situation. We have to always ask in community with others. How are our lives different because we follow Jesus? A way of getting at that is to say, uh, what do I not have that I might otherwise have if I wasn't a follower of Jesus? Or what do I do that I might otherwise not do if I wasn't a follower of Jesus? All of that is simply a way of saying, how are we sacrificing and suffering for the kingdom of God? How are we putting the glory of God on display? Because the glory of God is nothing other than his, the, the shininess, the radiance of his self-sacrificial love. We, and these are our questions we got to seriously live in. Uh, because remember, we are all called to this. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what we're, you're called to. To suffer. Share in his sufferings that you can share in his glory. I don't think we can ask these questions too seriously, and we can't ask these questions too, too often. Not to condemn ourselves, but just to honestly assess uh, what's going on. And if we assess that, as a matter of fact, we're not really hearing the call of God. We haven't really yielded to the self-sacrificial love of God. Our lives aren't significantly different because we follow Jesus. If we discern that, then pray about and discuss with others, what are you going to do about that? How can you immediately begin to change your life so that you are, in fact, sacrificing more and serving others and in, 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 in carrying out the work of God? What can you do now, individually and, and with others, to put on display the self-sacrificial love of God? What can you do now? And what can you do? What plans can you put in place? And what strategies can you put in place so that a year from now, your life is going to look different than it does now? A year from now, you'll be sacrificing more. And five years from now, you'll be sacrificing a lot more. Your life will look a lot more kingdom. 
And so what plans and strategies can you put in place? Because um, uh, some, some of this you've got to grow into. It takes time. These are the kind of questions that as, as American Christians, uh, we, we've got to take very, very, very seriously. And, uh, and pray that God helps us be honest about, about assessing our lives. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two is this. And this is going to, I think, surprise some folks. Uh, but just hear me out on this. I think it's wonderful to read and study and learn from and admire and be inspired by uh, the Book of Martyrs uh, or by studying uh, the plight of Christians in third world, world countries or in, in hostile countries and to look at some of the sacrifices people make and read the heroes of the church tradition. That's wonderful and, and necessary. But you also have to be careful about something. I can tell you from experience the devil can jump all over that and drive you into a ground of self a hole of self-loathing that you're not going to be able to get out of. You have to be careful here. While we need to honestly assess our life and evaluate our lives as to whether or not we're hearing from God and, and obeying God and sacrificing the way he wants us to sacrifice, while we need to do that all the time, there is nothing to be gained by comparing ourselves with others. There's nothing to be gained by, by, by looking at how, how uh, people sacrifice and suffer in third world countries and, and uh, in, in, in environments that are hostile uh, to the Christian faith. Uh, there's nothing to be gained by comparing yourself with them. Learn from them. Be inspired by them. But, see, when we compare ourselves, we're, we're always involved in judgment. And judgment is always of the devil. In fact, judgment is the original sin of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Whenever we compare and assess ourselves with others, uh, you either end up judging yourself because they're sacrificing more than you, or you judge them because they're sacrificing less than you. And either way, it's, it's unproductive. It just doesn't... Judgment is the original sin. Now, we Christians tend to be experts at it. We always walk around judging. It's usually judging other people. But there are some who then are judging themselves. And both have no place in the kingdom. Because the reality is this. This isn't a competition. This isn't some kind of a sport like who gets the, suffers the most award? Who gets the, who gave up the most award? This isn't, suffering in the kingdom is non-competitive suffering. We're not trying to outrun somebody or, or, or evaluate ourselves next to somebody. Uh, that, that, that comparing and assessing can be a tool by which the devil locks us in to either pride, because we sacrifice more than those loser Christians, or condemnation, because those Christians sacrifice so much more than me. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. This is beautiful. Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. That's a good word right there. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, since the Lord is the one judge, judge nothing. Everyone say nothing. nothing. Judge nothing, which would include no one. Because a person is a thing, so judge nothing means judge no one. Judge no one and no thing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of people's hearts. Everything will be, reality will be perfectly disclosed just as it is when the Lord comes back. At that time, each will receive their praise from God or whatever they're going to get from God. I don't even judge myself, he says. Collapse that whole judgment game that compare because the only one who is who is in a position to judge is the one who's omniscient, who knows all the variables, and that's the Lord. So we're to collapse this a judgment assessment competitive comparing kind of a thing. There's, there's no role for it in the kingdom. Kingdom is not a competition sport. Suffering in the kingdom is non-competitive suffering. The only thing that we should be concerned with is this: 
Are we sacrificing the way God calls us to sacrifice? Are we living where God wants us to live? Are we sharing what God wants us to share? Are we doing what God wants us to do? And are we sacrificing and suffering the way God wants us to sacrifice and suffering? That's all we need to think about. It's not a compa- Whether someone does more or less than you is not your concern. Let go of it. The only thing that matters is are you doing what God calls you to do? It may be more than others. It may be less than others. But, but the only variable that matters is what is God calling you to do? And so long as you're living where God wants you to live and sacrificing the way God wants you to sacrifice, then be content with that. Be inspired by others, but don't be comparing yourself with anybody. So it's like this. Here, here's, here's a trap. Let's like, I, I know several folks at William Hills Church who, uh, uh, when they were shopping, um, they, they, for a house, they bought a house that was significantly smaller and less expensive than they could have afforded. Uh, than they could afford. They could have got a bigger house. But they decided to go smaller and, and, and not have all the conveniences they wanted because they wanted to take that $30,000 or $40,000 that they saved and then use it for the kingdom and to serve the poor. It's wonderful. Great. Now, compared to, compared to the suffering that the early Christians went through or that the Anabaptists went through, that's hard. You can't call that a sacrifice. That's peanuts. That's nothing. But these folks aren't early Christians or Anabaptists. They're 21st century Americans. And sorry that you don't live in a culture where you can get boiled in oil because you're a follower of Jesus, but it's not your fault. You're here, and if God calls you to be here, that kind of sacrifice counts. That's, that's one way of putting on display the self-sacrificial love of God in this culture. You see, that's valid. That's legitimate. And you shouldn't be comparing yourself to the early Christians or Anabaptists. I, I know some folks at Woodland Hills Church who, who feel called to get by on one car instead of when they really could use two, uh, but they wanted to free up resources for the kingdom. I know some folks who have been called to shop at thrift stores when they could easily afford to go to more expensive stores, but they want to free up money for the kingdom and and to serve the poor. I know some folks who have even cashed in part of the retirement to give to people in need. It's wonderful, beautiful stuff. That's kingdom. But it hardly compares to what Christians in North Korea or in other places are going through. It, it, compared to the sacrifices of Christians in persecuted countries, it, it, that, those things are, are, are pincy. They're, they're, they're little. But you shouldn't be comparing yourself to Christians in North Korea or some other uh, uh, persecuting country. You, you, unless you're called to go there, then don't compare yourself with the people who are there. If you're called to be here, then, then, then sacrifice and live out the call of the gospel in this place and in this place, in this context, in this time, Doing these sorts of things, these sort of sacrifices count. That's valid. That's legitimate. You're suffering for the cause of Christ. You're putting on display the self-sacrificial love of God. I know some folks who have, have been called to uh, not eat meat. <laughs> I know a few of them. Uh, I know some people who, who, who are called to get their meat from free-range farms because they, they, they feel it's inconsistent with the kingdom to be supporting industries that mistreat animals. Uh, uh, there's some folks in our congregation who have, uh, have been called to give up one of their kidneys. They got two kidneys. There are some folks over there who don't have any that work well. So they give one of their kidneys to perfect strangers. That's beautiful. It's, it's called our organ ministry or church organist or something like that. Oh, it's, it's true. We had a whole group of people that, I'm serious. It's, that's what it's called. Yeah, think about it, man. It's a, it's a beautiful kingdom thing. I know some folks, a lot of folks who, who this last Christmas cut back seriously on their Christmas giving to have money freed up to serve the poor. That was our, our Making Space campaign. It was beautiful. Now, this is beautiful stuff. But, come on, compared to, compared to the sacrifices of those who felt called to go to third world countries like Haiti and other places, and they give up all of their possessions and all of their security and all their retirement, and all, compared to those sacrifices, these things are really pretty small. In fact, they don't even compare. But you're not supposed to be comparing. 
Because you're not called to a third world country. Unless you are, then get over there. But if, if you're called here, you're not there. And so this isn't a competition. This isn't a contest. This isn't a who does the most suffering kind of a thing. No, this, you're here. And in this context, in this time, these kind of sacrifices put on display the beauty and the glory of God. And so if you're doing what God calls you to do and living where God calls you to live and making the sacrifices that God calls you to sacrifice and sharing what God calls you to share, be content with that. If it doesn't match up with somebody else's, that's no concern of yours. You may be sacrificing more than others. But don't turn around and say, oh, look at those. You, know, you, you maybe gave up all. You, maybe you, you sold all your possessions, and now you're living among the poor, and that's beautiful and wonderful. God called you to that. But don't turn around. I've seen people do this and say, look at those, look at those rich Christians. They call themselves Christians living in their half-million-dollar houses. I gave up mine. Well, glad that you gave up yours, but, but you're not God, so don't go around judging. And by the same means, by the same means, by the same means, you know, if... if Others have been called to make sacrifices that are way, way, way more painful than the ones we make. Don't go around judging yourself. It doesn't mean you're a loser. We have to always be open to God calling us to make new sacrifices, but uh, there's no place for judgment. As, if a person hasn't invited you in on their life, as I often say around here, you're allowed one opinion about them. End of story. And that one opinion is that they were worth Jesus dying for because that's all you know about them. They have unsurpassable worth. And so whatever you see, Amen. Whatever you see, you just bless them, you just love them, you ascribe unsurpassable worth to them. The fact that they're, you know, rich and living in, have a lot of houses, maybe driving a Lamborghini or something, I don't know, Rolex watch, whatever. You see it, and maybe if you, if you find yourself gossiping about them in your brain, you catch that. And remind yourself of what your one calling is to do, and that's to say that person was worth, worth Jesus dying for, and just bless them. There's no place for judgment in the kingdom of God. Oh, I got time for just one question. But you know, when, when they post this on, on the, the website, they put in the questions from previous services. So uh, and there were some good questions, but I'm sorry. I, got, I didn't go, I didn't preach for A, but I did. It, it was a little longer than I intended. Okay, let's, let's go one question. My mother-in-law helps me share in Christ's suffering. <laughs> Nasty. Is this something I have to suffer with until A? <laughs> Uh, until the end of my life or her life, when do I say enough is enough? <laughs> Lord, I want to pray for this person here. I, I... We intercede on their behalf. Okay, look, at all, all I can say about that is, this. I mean, it's comical, but you know, there's, there's a point here where, um, I mean, sometimes uh, in, in love calls us to suffer. And, and actually, if you, you are, um, uh, if you are, uh, crucifying your flesh that wants to strike out against her or say nasty stuff about her or, you know, retaliate in some ways. You're crucifying that. That's suffering. That counts as suffering for Christ. Um, I mean, there's a lot of suffering in this world that is just suffering in this world. It's, it's you know, the, it's just part of this fallen war zone world that we live in and we take hits. That's just suffering. But, but when we suffer out of love, that's always. Patience requires a kind of suffering. If you read Romans thir- or, or, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, uh, all of the things that characterize love require some suffering on our part, and, and that counts. Um, now, as to how long you have to do that, see, here, here's what I'd say. Yes, you have to do it to the end of your life, unless there's sometimes where love has to confront. Sometimes love, love does say, uh, I, you know, we always, to live in love means you ascribe unsurpassable worth to them and to yourself and to your kids and everyone who's affected by that situation. And so um, 
Sometimes you're not ascribing unsurpassable worth to a person by allowing their dysfunctional meanness to go on. And because and, you're saying that's appropriate. You're letting them think that that's appropriate. And sometimes in love, you have to say, that's got to stop. That's got to stop. And, uh, and here, you know, Jesus', Jesus uh, uh, teachings about what to do in a group situation in a church when there's an offense or whatever, there's a lot of wisdom here. Because Jesus says, when a, when a brother or sister offends you, you go to them individually. Uh, first, you go one-on-one and confront them. If that doesn't work, you bring others and confront them. And if that doesn't work, you bring it before the whole church. Well, that can, to some degree, be applied to families. You go as gently as possible, as lovingly as possible, as confidentially as possible to avoid any kind of shame. And you say, mother-in-law, listen, you've got to stop doing this. I'm not going to have my kids, you know, be subjected to what you're doing or whatever the issue may be. You're causing me to suffer in ways that aren't healthy. Uh, So it's got to stop. If that doesn't work, maybe then you take a brother or sister uh, or their whole family and you confront this. Sometimes, sometimes things can be so nasty that uh, out of love, you got to say, start spending consequences. If this doesn't change, what? I'm not going to bring the kids over here. Uh, because they, I, I, I have to raise them, and what you're doing is just not healthy, blah, 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 whatever. And, and there is a time where you, you even like cut it off, uh, cut off the relationship. Uh, it's, you know, that, there's a million qualifications there because you've got a husband or a wife that you also have to live with, and that's where mommy gets really complicated and messy, and God give you wisdom. Pray for wisdom, <laughs> the wisdom from on high, because you're going to need it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, family issues can... Okay, there's a lot of other good questions that we, we addressed, but uh, I don't have time to get them to them now. How would you teach the concept of suffering to children when as parents you want the best for them? Wonderful, wonderful question. You do it in age-appropriate ways. Um, but if you want the best for them, you've got to teach them about suffering. And, and that suffering will, I mean, will look like, in fact, this uh, class that we're offering here on love and logic that was uh, talked about earlier, uh, it's all about this. And I, if you're a parent, I encourage you to take that class because it's about letting consequences do the teaching. Letting your kids suffer when they need to suffer. You made a decision, and now it's a bad decision, and so you, there's, a, there's suffering involved in it. And you have to do it in age-appropriate ways with wisdom, whatever, but learning consequences is so important, and learning sacrifices is so important. And so it might just, you know, you start off you, you, simple uh, with, with my granddaughter, Sage. I, it can be about, you know, uh, what would, wouldn't Jesus want you to share one of those gummy bears? you got a whole bunch, and Eden wants one. Can you share a gummy bear? And, um, you know, that, 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 that feels like suffering to, to a two-year-old or a three-year-old. Um, and so you, you teach about sharing, and it's all about coming against our, our fallen inclination to hoard and to be greedy and to have all of that. And so, you, you, and, and, you know, I, I, if, you, if you don't believe in original sin, then, then raise some kids. Because you find at the age of, at, at the age of two, <laughs> man, there's that, mine, my precious gummy bears, I don't want to share and so you start teaching in age-appropriate ways. I've got time for one more. You talked a lot about sacrifice in terms of money and possessions. In what ways can I suffer and sacrifice for God without putting my family on the street? Um, excellent. There was a whole section here in my message that I ended up taking out yesterday morning because I realized I wouldn't have time to get to it. Um, and it essentially was this. Um, if you look at love in 1 Corinthians 13, living in love always involves sacrifice. And and the money, I, I did focus on money and possessions because that's, I think, the one that we feel most indicted by when we compare ourselves to Christians in third world countries or in persecuted countries. But in fact, living in love always involves sacrifice. Love is patient. Well, that means you got to sacrifice your, your urge to have it now. Love is kind. Well, that means you got to sacrifice 
your impulse to be cruel sometimes, or your, your impulse just to neglect people, you know, to, to put them off your radar screen. There's always love, always, genuine love, agape love, the kind of love that we're called to live in, and the kind of love that is already in our heart if we've surrendered to Christ and is moving us in a certain direction. It's always cruciform love, which simply means cross-looking love. It looks like Calvary. It always involves some level of sacrifice. At the very least, it involves crucifying your flesh, crucifying that a fallen impulse that we have to hoard, uh, to have it, to, to, to just live, uh, to seek first, not the kingdom, but to seek first my kingdom, to seek first my comfort, to seek first my security, mine. And uh, love is always about having others on your radar screen, loving others as you love yourself. Not that you neglect yourself, but you, you uh, treat others as yourself. That's what love is all about. And so there's no mine. It, there's, there's simply ours. And, and in, in this ours, that there's, there's seeking God's will about what does God want me to uh, enjoy and live off of, but also what does God want me to invest in others. And so we, I, I want to re- repeat and end with this, uh, the assignment. Ask the question, and if possible, invite others in on this question with your small group or those you, a friend, those, those you share life with. Are you doing that? That's all it is. Are you doing that? Are, are you, in fact, hearing God? Uh, and obeying God and giving what he's called you to give and sharing the way he calls you to share. Uh, it, it's okay. To, it's not your fault if you have more than other people have and you suffer less than other people suffer. There, there's nothing wrong with that so long as that is where God calls you. That's where you're, that you're supposed to be. But we always have to be open to saying, God, you know, uh, what now? Just because he allowed me to have it last year doesn't mean that I'm supposed to have it now. Right. You know, it, it, I, I grow, I change, the world changes so God may say, Christ, the head of the body, may say, okay, right now, Greg, I want to use you in this way. Give that up. I want you to sell that. You know, it, and this has happened to me. Uh, that money right in your wallet, I want you to give that to that person. And, and be open to that. Be open to that. Because when you obey on, on, on when, when we obey on that, man, that's, that's when the joy kicks in. There's no joy in my precious. There's no joy in that. that that's, we think that there is, but that's a lie of, of, to the hell. Joy comes as we learn to share our gummy bears. And, and it really is. That's, that's the joy of the kingdom. Amen. And, and having that joy, we're sharing, we're participating in the joy of Christ. His joy is fulfilled in us. Any questions you'd like to ask about anything that's at all related to this uh, topic? Uh, and if I don't see you, just say, hey, over here. So, questions? Mm-hmm. If you've invited somebody in on your life, how do you uh, control somebody that's out of control? Uh, say it again. Oh, okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. If you've invited somebody in in your life and they're out of control, judging you, well, you can't I can get them out of your life. <laughs> that probably wasn't the best answer. No, I don't, no. Well, you know, no, but you know, there's a little truth to this. Look, if you can't control them and you can't, um, there's a point where, I mean, you have to, like, you know, ask, always ask the question what's the most loving thing to do? What's the most loving thing to do? And the criteria for that was what describes worth to them and, and to you and to others who are affected by this, okay? Because love is about ascribing unsurpassable worth to another. And, and that doesn't always look flowery. Sometimes, you know, it, it's not good for people. You know, I mean, I don't know if this person thinks that, that it's appropriate to try to control you or to tr- judge you. You're not helping them by letting them do that or by tiptoeing around it with Minnesota in nice or something like just indulging that. Sometimes you've got to be in their face. And, um, uh, you know, depending on the severity of the behavior, sometimes you've got to put the stop measures in place. Like, this has got to stop. And if that doesn't work, it's like, well, if this doesn't stop, here are the consequences. Um, and um, it's like that love and logic 
class that some of you are going to take, it will tell you that you have got to, with kids, you've got to the consequences do the teaching. You set things up so the consequences do the teaching. That also applies in all areas of life. This is what tough love's about. In the, in the New Testament, you know, in the early, you have these communities where, and Jesus tells us, if someone is, is uh, doing something where they've got something against you or there's some kind of real kind of grievous thing going on here, we're not talking about a little minor irritation, but something that needs to be confronted, you first go to them alone, and you say, you know, brother or sister, this behavior here has got to stop, and, and, and da-da-da, you point it out. If it works, wonderful, all is restored. If it doesn't, then you bring two or three with you, what Jesus says in Matthew 18. And you say, this has got to stop, that we agree this is dysfunctional or bad or sinful or inconsistent with the kingdom. And if they stop, wonderful, all is well and good. Uh, but if they don't, then you bring them before the whole community. And so there is a point where, you, you know, depending on how severe this is, uh, you have to confront it. And if that confrontation doesn't work, then what's a, big, a way of, of getting a bigger voice in this? And there, in extreme cases, there can come a time where you say, at least for a time, this is, wall's got to be here. This wall's got to be here. Because allowing this to go on uh, at all costs uh, is just... And now they will maybe go ballistic and call you a, the Antichrist. And, you know, you say you're a loving person and yet you're shutting out your life. But uh, that, that, they may be doing that anyways. Excellent question, a tough one. Other other things on this topic. Yes. Okay, good. So the question is, because you you say you have affinity with the Mennonites. Well, then would you, uh, if your family was being attacked, would you uh, uh, intervene? Um, I would certainly intervene. Uh, I would certainly intervene. I I would uh, intervene in as least forceful a way as I could, but I'd intervene. Um, Here's the thing. Here's the thing, it's, it's the, the all-important question. John Yoder, by the way, wrote a book on this. John Yoder, it's called What Would You Do? And it's the most brilliant little 60-page analysis of that question, which is always used. Um, and it's, it's, it's just a brilliant thing. So you might want to, if that's a question that you ask you know, uh, yourself, you might want to look into this. So here's the thing. Um, you know, someone broke in and, and was, was going after my beautiful grandkids you know, with, with a club or gun or something. You know, the truth is, I don't know what I do. Uh, I, I, you know, when you're in that situation, uh, you know, you're, a rule book doesn't matter much. What, in situations like that, you act out of your character. You're not like looking up a, a book like, what does the rule book say? Um, so I, you really don't know what you do, but I, I would, would hope I would operate in a way that would do everything to prevent that from happening, including putting myself in harm's way, but while also acting in ways that would ascribe unsurpassable worth to this person and adhere to what I think are the, the teachings of Jesus. That I'm not allowed to kill him. I didn't create him, so I can't kill him. Um, and, and, but see, here's what often happens. Is, is, is that, and I'm not, you, I'm not saying you're doing this. I'm just you know, processing the way this often goes down. People, we usually assume that since it's obvious that we should you know, t- use whatever force is necessary to stop him, including killing the person, it feels immoral not to kill him if that could save your family. We start with that premise. And then what happens is then we say, well, now, if, if that makes sense with your family, then it surely applies to your neighbor. If it applies to your neighbor, it applies to your state. If it applies to your state, it applies to your nation. Boom. Now, the Jesus' teachings mean nothing. Loving your enemies, uh, bless those who persecute you, never retaliate, never pick up the sword. It applies to grumpy neighbors, you know. But see, the, the enemies that Jesus was talking about were precisely the kind that break into your house and kill you. <laughs> the, the, the real enemies. When you say enemies in the first century Jewish culture... The first things people think of is Romans. And these Romans are the ones who, they're barbaric, they're nasty. But see, it's so obvious to us, so obvious to us that 
that Jesus couldn't mean that, then we say, well, it must mean something else. But the minute we say it must mean something else, well, then it, it comes to mean nothing because we extrapolate it. All right? And this is the whole just war thing. I'd rather start from a different perspective. I, 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 I would rather say, look, at, I, I'm going to assume Jesus is right. Um, and start with the assumption that Jesus is right. And that if I don't see why he's right, that's on me. I, I must be foggy or I, you know, I'm, I'm jaded by this world. Because uh, it seems counterintuitive uh, that, that, that he would be saying that. But he does say that, and there's never a qualification. And it's very clear that he's referring to unconditionally no enemies. I think it's the clearest thing in the Bible, actually. And it's just that it doesn't make sense to us. That's the way we, we, we say it's foggy, but it's not. It's, it's as obvious as can be. So I want to start there. And, and then say, if I live in this day in and day out, and practice loving enemies in all the little ways, because for 99.9% of us, th- th- that scenario is never going to happen, <laughs> it, it, you know, thankfully. But um, so let's, let's love enemies the way we can right now. And I practice praying for enemies. I've been doing this for the last 10 years, where I t- intentionally take the enemies of America and my own personal enemies and whatever, and I pray for them. It's a great exercise. And, and I'm going to assume that if I do that day in and day out, maybe my character will grow to the point where uh, in 20 years, God forbid, but if, if uh, someone breaks into my house uh, and is threatening me and my wife and my grandkids, I won't just be a person who says, oh, what should I do? But rather, I'll be a person who's got the kind of character that genuinely loves the guy, like my own grandkids. And, 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 and so I, that automatically will condition how I respond, because this is like my own grandkid breaking in here. And at the very least, I'd be less hesitant to, to grab the gun. Um, uh, I, I would operate in ways that, that reflect his unsurpassable worth. And the thing is, is that really, I mean, we, we tend to, because we're conditioned by our culture and just the fallen world, we're conditioned to think that either you pick up the gun and shoot the person or you just let, let them go ahead and rape your wife. I get that all the time. Oh, so you just let them rape your wife. But see, between these extremes, there's a trillion things. It's just that if you think that immediately you're going to go for the gun, you miss those trillion things. A, wisdom would, t- would, would show you a lot of ways on, on responding that are short of this. As a matter of fact, if I can say this, I, I'm kind of jumping away. You, you, yeah, you serve up a softball. I got to hit it. You know, it's like, but see, here's the thing is that, that, that um, there is a, a lot of evidence that shows that as a matter of fact, uh, when you bring in a, uh, violence into the situation of the intruder, you've just increased significantly the odds that it's going to be much more lethal than it otherwise would have been. Um, um, you know, you, you show a gun, well, the person never was going to plan on doing that, but now you've just, you, you, you all of a sudden, you're playing much higher stakes poker than you were before. And chances are, they've, they know how to use the gun better than you do. <laughs> you know? uh, and and uh, so maybe there's more wisdom in Jesus' uh, you know, teaching than, than we would have given credit for. But uh, the bottom line is that I, I, I wouldn't, I, I would quickly go from this, this theoretical question, what would you do if? Because we don't know what we do. But rather say, let's start with the teachings of Jesus and start living in them. Start living with them. And, um, uh, and develop the kind of character that maybe would, maybe eventually where it would make sense and it would seem like the moral thing and the beautiful thing to do. i tell you for one more, and a person over here had asked a question earlier. Yes? Yeah, I'm not following you. Like, having a disabled person... Uh, how do you help them without judging them? Well, you, you know, I, I don't know, but um, I, I'm not quite sure what you're asking for, but let me take a stab because I just feel like I'm actually over time here. But um, that it, it's all, 
there is a distinction between, this might help, I, I don't know, but um, there is the same Greek word, krino, krino or katakrino, is used uh, for to you know, two concepts. One is judgment, and the other one is discernment. And whereas judgment is always prohibited, you know, Jesus, Paul, James, they all, Peter, they all speak, never judge. Um, discernment is, is actually held up uh, in Hebrews 5. That, you know, as you mature, you can, and uses the same word, and that it confuses people, but it, it doesn't have at all a negative connotation to it. That, the word kata just means to, to distinguish or to cut or to, to separate. So you separate things. And so discernment means you separate wise things from stupid things or godly things from ungodly things, helpful things from unhelpful things. Um, dangerous things from safe things. And that is very, very necessary. You can't live without doing that. Judgment is where you don't separate this way, you separate this way, and you're on the top. Or, unless you're judging yourself, then you're on the bottom. Well, there's still a party that's on the top, judging the party that's on the bottom. But, so, I, I, I've never described it like this. This is just now coming to me. This is what I love about Q&A. This stuff comes out of you that you didn't plan on. Um, so you might think of discernment. Terry, would you write this down? Because I'll forget about it. I, discernment is... Is, uh, is, is a distinguishing, that is, this is a horizontal, right? Uh, okay, so discernment is a horizontal dis- uh, separation, whereas judgment is a vertical uh, separation. Yeah. Because so you're, you're always looking down or looking up. And so we always need to be discerning. Yeah, we always need to be discerning. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, this from this. But uh, you can do that without any of this. This is always, only God should be able to, to do that. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, I want to end in prayer and just kind of a commission to go out. And I'd like to, as I do that, ask the prayer teams to come forward here. And if you are here to, uh, this morning and have any need in your life, maybe it's a mother-in-law, maybe it's a father-in-law, maybe it's a wife or a husband, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's a health issue. But come up here and pray with these folks. That's what they're here for. They, they, they would love to, uh, just the work of Christ pouring into your life. In that way. So, Abba Father, uh, as we leave here, God, we, we ask, God, that you would give us honesty with our life. Pause for a second here. I forgot to tell you, I want to give you an assignment. And the assignment is to look at those questions. I'm, I'm interrupting my own prayer. How rude of me. Uh, but I, I, I forgot to mention this. I want to give you an assignment. I gave it in the other, other services. And the assignment is to take those questions that I put up there. We'll have them on the website. And to seriously think and pray about them and discuss them with others, okay? Uh, and, and to do that sooner than later. And if possible, do it in dialogue with others. Okay, back to the prayer. Father, <laughs> uh, God, will you help us be honest with these questions and, and assessing our lives? Uh, give us the courage to face that honestly. Uh, and, and Father, put in our heart a passion, the energy that burned in Paul, Christ in us, the hope of glory. God, uh, just help us to, to be yielding to Christ in us who pushes us to our glory, which is about self-sacrificial love. Uh, and, and God swimming upstream in this culture and, and being aware of the, the, the infectious air that we, we, we breathe here, God. We want to put on display the countercultural kingdom that looks like Jesus on Calvary. Uh, but God, at the same time, I pray that as we leave here, you'll also protect us from the evil one who would take anything good and try to make something evil out of it. Protect us, God, from, from uh, judging others. Protect us, Lord, from judging ourselves. Help us, God, to have the mindset of Paul where he says, I don't even judge myself. I, I just, I, God, help us just to do what you call us to do, to hear what you're calling us to do, to obey and be content with it. And we leave all else to you. As we leave this place to put on display your radiant love by the way we serve others. In Jesus' name. And all of God's servants said, God bless you guys. Go out. Love on the world. Amen.